This podcast is brought to you by the book, The Memoir Project, a thoroughly non-standardized text for writing in life, published by Grand Central Publishing. Recently updated and reissued in a new edition, it will teach you everything you need to know to write memoir. For more information, see the show notes or purchase wherever books are sold. Welcome to QWERTY. I'm Marion Roach-Smith. Each episode, I talk to writers from all genres to discover what makes a good read. And along the way, we discuss their writing process, discover their tips, and talk about what matters most to writers. So step away from the computer or typewriter for a bit and join us. Today, my guest is writer Carolyn Sloan. Carolyn is a singer, composer, a writer, a teacher, and an author. Her three books include Finding Your Voice, a practical and spiritual guide to singing and living, Welcome to the Symphony, an exploration of the orchestra using Beethoven's Symphony No. 5, and Welcome to Jazz, a swing-along celebration of America's music. Her songs have been performed on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial, in theaters off-Broadway, on radio and television, and on concert stages around the world. Welcome, Carolyn. Thank you for having me, Marion. I'm so glad to be here. Well, it's a joy. And you are a creative in the truest sense of the word, which is why I so wanted to speak with you. I marvel at your breadth. And I suspect that breadth is hard won. So let's set this up for my readers who are writers and who want to know how to live a creative life. You're the daughter of two New York City public school teachers. You began playing classical piano at age seven and attended the illustrious performing arts high school in Manhattan, that that one that we know from the movie Fame. At 15, you became a professional singer. So where and what did you perform at that age of 15? Well, it's kind of a funny story because I was obviously in high school at the time and I had become friends with three boys, and I think it's fair that I call them boys at that time. None (laughs) of us were older than 15, and we just would sing and harmonize together in the halls of school, you know, all afternoon or in between classes. And they were singing in Central Park one afternoon, and um, some record producers heard them. And I was not there. The record producers suggested that They'd like to hear them with a female voice. Do they have a friend who also sings with them? So, of course, (laughs) I was the obvious person that they were going to choose because that's exactly what we were doing at school anyway. And we became a group (laughs) kind of overnight. And it was not the epitome of an original band because it was really kind of contrived. But we were modeled after, if you can imagine, the Beach Boys, and the skateboarding was very big at the time. (laughs) And um, (laughs) yeah, I know it's kind of silly story, but it's true. And we became sneakers and lace, and we were to skateboarding what the Beach Boys were supposedly to surfing. It was a little contrived, but I think the creativity, if you will, behind it was the fact that we were so into music that even in our free time, you know, before the, the producers had, had heard these guys in the park, we'd sing at school so much and write songs together and just hang out. And there was this very profound need to express oneself. 
And I think mm-hmm. that was the earmark, this desire uh, to be heard, to express oneself that really kind of started it. Um, the group itself was really kind of a commercial convention, but our association, our friendship was based in, in creativity. Well, and that, that's the root of it. And, and you began writing for theater, television, advertising, campaigns with jingles for Ford, Glade, Weight Watchers, and Tampax. You are the absolute perfect person to ask about creating a life that is based in what we truly want to do, but also earns money also. So after all, we can't simply make our art and hope that someone knocks on the door and says, oh, here's some money for that, by the way. You didn't know you needed it, but you do. So what did you first learn that you can share about taking one's talent into the marketplace when you started to literally make money from your art? You know, I'm a very practical person. (laughs) And I think it comes from being the daughter of two public school teachers. You know, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. And I was always kind of inventing ways to kind of earn more allowance or, you know, earn some money on the side, you know, even while I was going to school. So I think I knew that art has both uh, commercial expression and also simply a creative and artistic one. So I thought, well, how can I use my skills and make some money? And I had a friend who was in a theater writing workshop with me, and he was writing jingles at the time. And I said, Mm. okay, Michael, you have to tell me, how do I do this? Like, how do I get into this? because I need to make some money. I also, just as an aside, when I was growing up, I used to ride in the car with my parents, and we'd pass all these billboards, and we'd take these long trips up to the Catskill Mountains where we used to go for the summers, and I would be bored. And so I would look at the the advertisements, and I would, in my head, just start putting them to music. So if there was something... <laughs> that said, you know, Rice Krispies are good, you know, I would just be singing, Rice Krispies, Rice Krispies are good. You know, I just make up these songs (laughs) along the way just to entertain myself. And so when I got the opportunity to actually write something for advertising, I found that I was pretty good at it. But that came from really years of working, writing songs in theater and writing songs for dramatic productions. So I think it just came from being practical and wanting to earn money. Yeah. As so much of our motivation as artists does, it leads us to a place of how can I monetize this? And mm-hmm. both of those answers you, you just gave us have to do with voice. And you have this beautiful book called Finding Your Voice, A Practical and Spiritual Guide to Singing and Living, first published by Hyperion in 1999. And I have to say, it's the last phrase in that title that deeply intrigued me, singing and living. This book combines memoir, voice exercises, as well as a deeply spiritual take on connecting with our own emotional lives. But it begins with a confession in the introduction, that deeply critical voice that exists inside our heads and how it can silence us. This is a throwdown that sets up the whole book. 
and your authority and rolls out the rest of the tale. So let's talk about that deeply critical voice that could have kept you from singing, you know, Rice Krispies in the Catskills or could have kept you from this creative life. I recently interviewed Anna Quinlan, author of 21 books, winner of the Pulitzer Prize, pretty much Everything she knows about writing is, you know, there on the page in her new book about the power of writing. And she admitted in the interview that she every single day confronts that voice of doubt. So what is it and how do you deal with it? I thought it was so generous of you to open that book with that doubt. Mm. I think as humans, I don't know what it is, but from the people that I've spoken with, we do all have this voice that tells us, oh, maybe, you know, we're not good enough or, you know, I don't think we can do this or, you know, I also knew that I had incorporated a lot of the other negative voices around me. Oh, well, that's not really a practical career choice or you don't sound like Barbara Streisand or you don't sound like Madonna. That's a big one for singers, mm. this comparison. Mm -hmm. and, and I think it's a big one for most performing artists. I'm not sure as a writer, I because I write mainly nonfiction, I don't compare myself, you know, as a writer to, to great novelists, for instance. But I think that this comparison or this voice that we're always having obviously can be very destructive and it can silence us. I think over the years, I've learned to accept my own individuality and that mm. this is a good thing and that no one looks like me, so no one's going to sound like me. And no one's going to think like me. And that's a good thing. And that I put it in terms of music often when I actually teach voice. And I say, look, if we all sang exactly the same way and we all on the same beat with the same note and the same timbre, it would all be monotone. And where would be the music? There would be none. Mm. Music is different notes. Music is different sounds, different rhythms, all coming together to form this incredible sound, this tapestry of sound. So it's the precisely the difference that exists in each of us, the individuality that needs to be celebrated in order for this music to happen, in order for the beauty in the world to be apparent. So I think as I started looking at it in broader sense, I gave myself permission to be different and I gave myself permission to be human and fallible and didn't hold myself to measuring up to some external. Oh, it's a great answer and very helpful. Very, very, very helpful. And, and I wasn't a bit surprised in a book on finding one's own voice to find a large, deep pool of wisdom on grief. You state that, quote, singing aids us in grieving and soothes us when we're wounded, much in the same way it helps us to celebrate. And you say that when we voice our feelings, we begin to heal. And I agree with you, but I did not know I believed this too about singing until I, I read your line. So let's talk about that kind of transparency. By writing that, you changed my consciousness. And I began to connect what I always tell my writing students that I don't know how I feel about anything until I write it down. 
But I, I started to think about, you know, I don't know anything until I write it down, but I didn't know you could connect, oh, grief and voice. And there's just this lovely continuum of thinking and learning when we share what we really, really feel. And it, I do believe it changes consciousness. So this kind of transparency is needed for books to work, but it's hard. So first talk about giving yourself the go-ahead. I hate to say giving yourself permission, but giving yourself the go-ahead to write a book that encompasses your holistic philosophy and does so through this great belief you have on voice and its power. You know, it's it's interesting, Marion. I don't know if I can sort of put it in the terms of like giving myself permission rather than... It was something that I felt that I had to do. And I think mm. it came from actually great, I'll say pain and not even discomfort, because traditional voice training, traditional vocal training, is usually very based in exercise and developing vocal quality. And all of that is really important. But really what people connect to in a voice is not necessarily just the actual sound of the voice. It's what's coming through that sound. It is everything that voice has encountered, you know, for its life, for the that person's life. And it's those singers that can let their, for lack of a better word, souls through in, in that sound. You know, the hurt, the joy, the emotion, that's what we connect with. And I felt I had to say that because I had gone through so many years of training where no one said that, where no one recommended mm. to really connect with, you know, how I was feeling. And perhaps maybe I didn't have the best instruction. I can't even really evaluate that now objectively. But it was so important for me that I viewed it as a must, that it just... This was part of my, my mission in, in helping people accept their own individuality, their own voice, whether they're singers or not. You know, it's about mm -hmm. being who you are. And that voice is who you are. It's one and the same. Oh, you had to do it. I so get that. And when you said that, I was suddenly hurled back about 30 years, 35 years and the first time I heard a countertenor, and it was a good mm. countertenor, and I got a full body goosebumps. And the people I was with were, were not as affected by it. I had an experience mm. with it. And then I read an interview with that countertenor in Opera News. And there within this interview, he admitted that he had to go into therapy to get to his countertenor voice. And I'm going to get wrong mm. what that is. It's, it's a very high voice. Let me say that. And, and this is a, a person whose gender is male. And he talked about how in therapy, he admitted to his therapist that he was you know, desperately trying to stay a tenor, be a tenor, because there was this other voice, but it frightened him. And it's, it, it wasn't all that acceptable. and But then he became this countertenor and, and fully embraced that. What I think I was responding to was his liberation, was his, there was something that happened to me when I heard that voice. And when I read the interview, it just integrated. I said, that's what I was responding to, his true self. How mm. bizarre of me to have a response mm. like that. But how wonderful for you to offer that, because I think that's it with art. You have to do it. In fact, 
writers have to react. And I say this every single day to writers I work with. You must be willing and able to react. If you read something in the news and it makes you crazy, write an op-ed. If you read something, if you feel something strongly about the continuum of your own self and how it delivers your voice, get it down. But all too often, we have this other response. We say, oh, is it a good idea? Is it going to work? Long before we let ourselves sort of roll it out and see what we really think. So Mm -hmm. as you rolled out this book and examined what you really think, I assume you had to talk your, well, you have, first of all, you probably learned a lot about what you really think. The idea wasn't maybe completely full-blown when you started to write this book. Just give me the chicken and egg here. Did you know what you knew or did you learn a lot more or you say you had to do it, but, you know. Just, I love that question. <laughs> yeah. Do you, did you know what you knew? I, I, I love that. Um, you know, it it happened in a kind of a funny way, too, uh, not dissimilar to the Sneakers and Lace story where I was speaking with a friend. We were on the train in New York City. And I said, you know, when I'm 80 years old, I'm going to write this book about singing. And it's going to be, you know, going to divide into sections that in order to be a singer, you have to be a warrior, a scientist, a detective, and a spiritual master. <laughs> And I just sort of said it off the cuff, just like that. And, um, and she said, you know, that's a really good idea. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I'm going to yeah. do that when I'm like old and I'm going to write a book on singing. And then one thing led to the, to the next, and, and I ended up writing it obviously much sooner than when I was 80 because I'm not 80 yet. I think that I always felt that I wanted people who sing or who wanted to sing to be able to do it and to do it freely. And I had this whole idea, and you talked about therapy uh, for that countertenor, but you know, singing is like therapy. And a lot of the time people find that either where they go into therapy and they become better singers because they've removed a lot of emotional blocks, which kind of impair their breathing or just make them too self-conscious. And then you talked about you know, this kind of overly intellectual approach to writing where you're always planning something out or you're you're drawing a map of the story. And sometimes, you know, we have to follow that little intuitive voice. And I say little because sometimes it's very quiet and we can't hear it that Mm -hmm. well. But to Mm -hmm. get quiet and to be in that kind of, you know, they call it that pre-conscious state where you're you're awake, but you're kind of not awake. And you're in this dreamy state where you just let yourself go without any kind of constraint. And that's super important. And did I know what I knew? I think I did to a point. But, you know, I forget who said this, but, you know, you don't explain a poem. You interpret Mm -hmm. its meaning. And I think for me, writing that book was almost like writing a poem, even though it's kind of of a how-to in that I make recommendations on how one can better their singing. But it's more encouragement on letting yourself be who you are. And so many revelations have happened in my studio where students have come in and then had some memory or something like we're trying to work out a block or they can't 
that, you know, I say, well, look, your jaw is really tight and we got to work on that a little bit because I'm not really sure why it's so tight. And then there's lots of tears and things happen. And it's unbelievable how much emotional stuff comes out when we're singing because singing is Mm -hmm. not rational. Singing is that thing that happens when it's just, it's not rational. It's not from that front part of your mind. It's something much deeper. Oh, that's just so helpful. The idea that you touched on the idea that it comes from the subconscious or preconscious place, the idea that it's not rational, the acceptance of these truths is so important to be creative, that I interviewed my sister of all people, who's the garden columnist of the New York Times, and she talked, we were talking about the different forms of writing, whether it be the the miniatures or the personal essay or the op-ed or the book, she's written all of them, but she distinguished the personal essay as a place that comes from the pre-conscious or subconscious, that you just get this feeling about something. And you start to think about it. It's not like an assignment. It's not like the ones you get or your gardening column that has to be precise to the season and the things we're thinking about, but that there is this unknown place. So let's talk about who's informing that. I mean, you're a singer, composer, writer, performer, wife, mother, daughter, teacher. It sounds like not one of these is the dominant creative. It sounds like they all inform each other. But how would you put it? Hmm. I think that's tough. Mm. I think it's fluid in that there are different ones that are dominant at different times in my life. Mm-hmm. I think music is a constant. I have to be involved in music at some level in order to be really fulfilled. But at the same time, I also find that I really need to be an educator and be working with children as well to be truly fulfilled. So... And I need to always be making something. (laughs) So whether it's Mm -hmm. a song or whether I'm writing a book. I went through a phase when I was raising my son that I really loved to cook. So even if I'm making a meal, I think that this creative energy, this must of I have to make something, I need to create something, uh, is just a constant. The creative energy, the desire to make something all the time is really what drives me. And if it isn't music, then for instance, now with my company, I'm making interactive activities that teach and instruct um, for children to use online. And that's really important for me to do right now. So I think it's just this desire to create. So the creativity is is the mainstay, the desire to make something. And then what I'm actually making seems to be able to change, and that is what's fluid. So you didn't appear to get the memo, that memo that women of our generation got about sticking to one lane if you even dared to venture into the life of a creative. You'd be a singer or you'd be a writer, and if you're a writer, you choose a genre and you stay there. In other words, you'd be one single thing. So what did you do with that memo when it was sent to you? I don't know. Maybe I didn't get the memo. (laughs) Lucky you. (laughs) Because I don't know how to do that. Honestly, I am very fascinated by so many different things. And it's true. I think it makes it very difficult, I think, for the people in my life 
to define me. I and 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 my music is not dissimilar. Like I think it's very hard to define my music for except with one word, which is it tends to be very melodic. But other than that, I think it's just very hard to define what I do. So I love to mm-hmm. learn and things interest me. And when they really interest me, I, I don't want to say I get obsessive, but it's close. And I really dive in and I want to know everything about that particular thing. And then sometimes then I want to create it within that world, whatever that world might be. But for me, writing has always been a mainstay. Ever since I was mm-hmm. a kid, I was writing stories and making things up. And then in high school, I got really into writing poetry and college writing poetry, which then sort of moved me into writing lyrics because I started putting the poetry to melody. And then I realized that poetry and music were kind of separate things and that lyrics had a whole other life and that lyrics were less descriptive. You didn't need the descriptors because you had the music to describe the words. Um, And so um, I got really into uh, writing songs, which which I did for many years. I still do it. And then I had my son. And then I started writing kids' songs for my son and and for students. I I do, I feel like I need to get this in here, even though it's not necessarily part of the question, is that, you know, different times in your life, you know, call on you to do different things. And Mm. I'm fairly responsive that way. And when my son was very little, I was always writing songs, but the songs then became songs that were more integrated in our life. They became lullabies or they became funny songs to entertain him. Or they, And I didn't stop doing the other, but I had waited a long time to have a child and I really wanted to make him a priority in my life. So the music served the context, mm-hmm. you know, which was I'm mm-hmm. a mom now, so I'm going to do it this way. And then as soon as he was school age and doing other things, it changed again. So I think... I tend to be kind of fluid and responsive in the sense that when the context shifts and the needs shift or call on me to do something else, I'm fairly flexible that way. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating. I mean, you've got these two children's books. In 2015, you published a children's book called Welcome to the Symphony, an exploration of the orchestra using Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 5. It's musical, it's interactive, it teaches children and their families about the orchestra and classical music. And it's wonderfully illustrated by James Williamson, published by Workman Press. And you also wrote Welcome to Jazz, this one illustrated by Jessica Gibson, in which you harness the great song When the Saints Go Marching In to explain jazz to children. And these are beautiful books. They're interactive. They literally make music. And I played with them all the time when I got them and kept pressing the (laughs) buttons and learning. There's this gorgeous introduction in the jazz book that says that we're actually promised that the key concepts of jazz and understanding them will help kids develop into caring, independent, and open-minded human beings. So this totally transfixed me. And it's very subversive, if that's the right word, a piece of art moves us along in our outlook, replacing some of the stuff we previously thought. That's what subversion is. So all through this conversation of your books 
and your your work. I think we've been talking about being subversive a little bit, like turning things into things that work along our continuum of beliefs. Do you think that your work is subversive? I have never thought of it in those terms, in Mm -hmm. that light. No, I've never really thought about it, but it makes total sense to me that it might be because I think it goes Mm. hand in hand with wanting to be an individual and not wanting Mm. to simply follow because that's what we're all here for. I really do believe that, that we are here to be ourselves, to offer up a point of view, a way of being that is different and yet somehow supportive and encouraging and instructive to another human. I, I really believe that that's what we're here for. So it makes sense that it would be, although I don't think I ever set out to be subversive, but I think mm-hmm. I have always been wanting to be highly individualistic. I, In fact, when I went to the School of Performing Arts after having gone to two public schools in Queens, it actually was a huge relief to me to be at Performing Arts um, with other people who are really interested in in making art and being performers, because they were individuals already, even at their young ages, that they were all very, very their own person. And it was okay to be that way, and it wasn't okay to be that way. There's a lot of peer pressure in you know my middle school, and middle school is not good for anyone, I know. But yeah. I think it's about saying, it's okay, this is what I think, and I'm going to share this with you, and I want you to listen, but you don't have to listen and follow. You can take what's good for you and leave the rest, and I'll listen to you and maybe incorporate some of your ideas too. And that's where music comes in, because that's what great musicians do. They listen. Mm -hmm. When I teach music, and especially in an ensemble setting, The mark of really good musicians is always their ability to listen and respond. And I am married to an actor, a professional Broadway actor, who says the same thing about acting. So I think it's a metaphor just for life in general that if we can listen to each other, we can respond to each other, we can offer our own ideas, we can incorporate other ideas, and then somehow create this beautiful, again, tapestry of sound, of words, of voice, of living together, that we're not supposed to all be the same. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, that's beautiful. And as we wrap this up, I, I just have to completely default to a total fangirl status here and, and say you've written over 75 songs for young students. Schools and organizations around the country use them as integral components to music curriculums in elementary and middle school. And you're probably very accustomed to hearing your work performed. But your songs have been performed on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial. And I just need to know what it's like to hear a piece you've written performed there in the case of the Lincoln Memorial where the great Marian Anderson sang to our nation in 1939. This is a sacred venue. What was that like? Well, it was pretty amazing. <laughs> I, I, I do have to say, as someone, all, my father is an American history teacher. <laughs> it was an amazing experience, especially to hear children's voices sing 
words that I extracted from Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech, then to hear children from all different walks of life, from all different public schools down in Washington, D.C. and New York City come together and sing I Have a Dream there and also at, mm. at the new Dr. King Memorial. It was pretty amazing. I, I don't know if I have words for it, but it was very humbling. Mm. And I felt really, really grateful to, A, to have my work performed, but also performed by children. And, you know, there I, I don't remember who said this, but and I'm not a particularly religious person. I like to think of myself as spiritual, but not religious. And someone said, you know, when you sing something, you say it twice. I'm getting this quote wrong. But it's much more powerful when it is said in, with, in song. And to hear children sing that piece of mine, which, by the way, after I write something, I don't know if this happens to you, Marion, but after I write something, it almost feels like it's not mine anymore. So to hear this mm. song, which I knew that I composed, but to hear the children sing it and in that venue was beautiful but somehow unreal because it <laughs> had come through me, but it didn't necessarily feel like mine. I didn't feel like it was mine. I felt like it just belonged there. Oh, it's out there in the world. Oh, well, I just can't thank you enough for coming along today and helping us understand this creative life. It's really a joy to know you and to talk with you here. Thank you so much, Carolyn, and I can't wait to see what you write next. Oh, thank you, Marion. It was just lovely to talk to you, and I really appreciate you having me here. You're welcome. The writer is Carolyn Sloan. She can be reached at carolynsloan.com. She's the author of three books, Finding Your Voice, A Practical and Spiritual Guide to Singing and Living, Welcome to the Symphony, an exploration of the orchestra using Beethoven Symphony No. 5, and Welcome to Jazz, a swing-along celebration of America's music. Her books are available everywhere books are sold. I'm Marion Roach-Smith, and you've been listening to QWERTY. QWERTY is produced by Overit Studios in Albany, New York. Reach them at overitstudios.com. Our producer is Adam Claremont. Our assistant is Lorna Bailey. Want more on the art and work of writing? Visit marionroach.com, where I offer online classes on how to write memoir. And thanks for listening. Don't forget to follow QWERTY wherever you get your podcasts and listen to it wherever you go. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a starred review. It helps others to find their way to their writing lives. Oh,